Chapter Twelve of An Eye for an Eye by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twelve, The Deformed Man's Statement. Youth is as short as joy, and happiness vanishes like all else. In the mad hurry of life, however, we heed not such things. We live only for today. On our way back to Waterloo that night, Dick earnestly discussed the situation. "'And what's your opinion now?' I inquired, as he sat opposite me in the corner of the railway carriage. Dick smiled slightly. "'Both mother and daughter are connected with the affair, and are in deadly fear,' he replied decisively. "'While in the punt with Mary Blaine I had a long chat with her, and the conclusion I've formed is that she knows all about it. Besides, she was very anxious to know your recent movements, what you had been doing during the past week or so. I wonder whether she suspects. No, I don't think so, he answered. Neither mother nor daughter dream that we are in possession of the secret. You see, no one has returned to the place since the fatal night, and, as nothing has appeared in the papers, they naturally conclude that the affair has not yet been discovered. They evidently devour almost every morning and evening paper as it arrives down there. "'Did you notice the heap of papers in the morning room?' I asked. "'Of course. I kept my eyes well open while there,' he replied. "'Did it strike you that the plate used at dinner was of exactly the same pattern as that on the table at Fillmore Place, and further that among a pile of novels in the drawing-room was a book which one would not expect to find in such a place, a work known mainly to toxicologists, for it deals wholly with the potency of poisons?' "'No,' I asked in surprise. I didn't notice either of those things. But I did, he went on reflectively. All these facts go to convince me. Of what? That we are working in the right direction to obtain a key to the mystery, he responded. Then suddenly he added, By the way, that girl Glaslyn is certainly very beautiful. I envied you, old fellow, when you took her for a row. I smiled. I had determined not to reveal to him her identity as to the woman whom I had first discovered lifeless but his natural shrewdness was far greater than mine. He was a born investigator of crime, and had not fate placed him in a newspaper office, he would, I believe, have become a renowned detective. Glaslyn, Ava Glaslyn, he repeated, as if to himself. Why, surely that's the name of the girl you met in St. James's Park and followed to Hampton, the woman whom you found dead on your first visit to the house with Patterson? Is that really so? he cried in sudden amazement. I nodded without replying. "'Then, Frank, old chap,' he answered in the low, hoarse voice of one utterly staggered, "'this affair has assumed such a devilishly complicated phase that I fear we shall never get at the truth. To approach any of those three women would only be to place them on their guard, and without their assistance we can't possibly act with success.' "'Then what do you suggest?' I asked. "'Suggest? I can suggest nothing,' he answered. The complications on every side are too great, far too great. Only Ava Glaslyn can assist us, I observed. Yes, she alone can most probably tell us the truth. But her friendship for the Blaines is proof positive that her secret is a guilty one, even though she was so near being a victim. She was a victim, I declared. When I saw her she was apparently lifeless, lying cold and still in the chair, with every appearance of one dead. "'But what causes you to think that her secret is a guilty one?' I asked hastily. "'The Blaines undoubtedly are implicated in the matter, and she, their friend, is in possession of their secret,' he argued. 
as a victim she would be prompted to expose them if she did not fear exposure herself. She's therefore held to enforce silence. His argument was a very forcible one, and during the remainder of the journey to London I sat back calmly reflecting upon it. It was a theory which had not before occurred to me, but I hesitated to accept it, because I could not believe that upon this woman, who held me beneath the spell of her marvellous beauty, could there rest any such hideous shadow of guilt. I remembered those clear blue eyes, that fair open countenance, and that frank manner of speech, and refused to give credence to my friend's allegation. Slowly passed the days. Summer heat increased, and in London the silk-hatted world had already turned their thoughts towards the open fields and the sea-beach. The summer holidays were drawing near at hand. How much that brief vacation of a week or fortnight means to the toiling Londoner, and how much more to his ailing wife and puny family, doomed to live year after year in the smoke-halo of some black, grimy street into which the sun never seems to shine, or in some cheap, crowded suburb where the jerry-built houses stand in long, inartistic parallel rows and the cheap streets swarm with unwashed, shouting offspring. I had arranged to take my holiday in winter and go down to the Riviera, a treat I had long since promised myself. Therefore both Dick and I continued our work through those stifling days, obtaining from Boyd every now and then the results of his latest inquiries. These results, it must be said, were absolutely nil. I had agreed with Dick to keep our suspicions entirely to ourselves, therefore we gave no information to Boyd, preferring to carry out our inquiries in our own method rather than seeking his aid. It was well, perhaps, that we did this, for the police too often blunder by displaying too great an energy. I was determined, if possible, to protect Ava. At Riverdean Dick and I were welcome guests and were often invited to Sunday river parties, thus showing that any suspicions entertained of us in that quarter had been removed. Time after time I had met Ava, and we had on lots of occasions gone out on the river together, exploring over and over again that winding shaded backwater, and picking lilies and forget-me-not at the spot where on that memorable evening we had first exchanged confidences. I had received no invitation to the Hollies, but she had apologized, saying that the usual heat had prostrated her mother, and that, for the present, they had been compelled to abandon their picnics. Many were the afternoons and evenings I idled away in a deck-chair on that well-kept lawn, or, accompanied by Mary, Eva, Clue, and Fred Langdale, who, by the way, turned out to be an insufferable, overdressed bounder, who was continually dangling at Eva's skirts, we would go forth and pay visits to various houseboats up and down stream. Langdale looked upon me with a certain amount of jealousy, I think, and truth to tell was not, as I had imagined, of the milk-and-water genus. Ava seemed to regard him as a necessary evil, and used him as a tame cat, a kind of body-servant to fetch and carry for her. From her remarks to me, however, I had known full well from the first that there was not a shadow of affection on her side. She had explained how she simply tolerated him because companions were few at Hampton, and he was a fairly good tennis-player, while he, on his part, was unconsciously making an arid ass of himself in the eyes of all by his efforts to cultivate a drawl that he deemed aristocratic and to carefully caressing his moustache in an upward direction. Dick Clue, thorough-going bohemian that he was, 
cared but little, I believe, for those riparian gatherings. True, he played tennis, rode, punted, and ate the strawberries and cream with as great a zest as any of us. Nevertheless, I knew that he accepted the invitation with but one object, and that he would far rather have strolled in one of the parks with Lily Lowry than row Mary Blaine up and down the stream. Lily often came to our chambers. She was about twenty-two, of a rather southern type of beauty, with a good figure, a graceful gait, and a decidedly London chic. She spoke, however, with that nasal twang which stamps the true South Londoner, and her expressions were not absolutely devoid of the slang of the Newington butts. Yet withal she was a quiet, pleasant girl. Thus half the month of July went by practically without incident, until one blazing day at noon, when I went forth into Fleet Street for lunch, I unexpectedly encountered Dick, hot and hurrying, his hat tilted back. He had left home very early that morning to work up some startling discovery that had been made out at Playstyle, and already hoarse-voiced men were crying the fourth comet with the latest details he had unearthed. In reply to his question as to where I was going, I told him that after luncheon I had to go down to Walworth to make some trifling inquiry, whereupon he said, "'Then I wish you'd do a favor for me, old fellow.' "'Of course,' I answered promptly. "'What is it?' "'Call at the Lowry's and tell Lily to meet me at Longborough Junction at eight tonight, at the usual place. I want to take her to the Crystal Palace to see the fireworks. I was going to wire, but you'll pass her father's place. Will you give her the message?' "'Certainly,' I answered. "'But is she at home?' "'Yes, she's got her holidays. Tell her I'm very busy, or I'd have come down myself. Sorry to trouble you.' I promised him to deliver the message, and after eating a chop at the cock I walked along to the Gaiety, and there took a blue motor-bus which deposited me outside a small, very dingy shop a few doors up the Walworth Road from the Elephant and Castle which bore over the little old-fashioned window the sign, Morris Lowry, Herbalist. Displayed to the gaze of the passers-by were various assortments of lozenges and bunches of dried herbs, boxes of pills guaranteed to cure every ill, and a row of dirty glass bottles filled with yellow liquids containing filthy-looking specimens of various repulsive objects. The glaring cards in the window advertised such desirable commodities as Lowry's wind-pills, Lowry's cough-tablets, and Lowry's herbal ointment, while the window itself and the whole shop-front was dirt-encrusted one pane being cracked across. As I entered the little dark shop, a mere box of a place smelling strongly of chamomile sarsaparilla and such-like herbs which hung in dried and dusty confusion all over the ceiling, there arose from a chair the queerest, oddest creature that one might ever meet, even in the diverse crowds of lower London. Morris Lowry, the herbalist, was a strange specimen of distorted humanity, hunchback with an abnormally large semi-bald head, a scrubby gray beard, and wearing large old-fashioned steel-rimmed spectacles which imparted to him an appearance of learning and distinction. His legs were short and stumpy, his body rather stout, and his arms of inordinate length, while the whole appearance of his sickly yellow wizened face was such as might increase one's belief in the Darwinian theory. Indeed, it was impossible to look upon him without one's mind reverting to monkeys, for his high cheekbones and square jaws bore a striking resemblance to the facial expression of the ancestral gorilla. Dressed in black cloak and conical hat, he would have made an ideal stage wizard. But attired as he was in greasy black frock coat, 
and trousers that had long ago passed a glossy stage, he was certainly as curious-looking an individual as one could have found on the Surrey side of the Thames. He was no stranger to me, for on several occasions I had called there with Dick and had chatted with him. Trade in herbs had dwindled almost to nothing. Nowadays, with all sorts and varieties of well-advertised medicines, the people of Newington, Walworth, and the New Kent Road did not patronize the old-fashioned herbal remedies, which, if truth be told, are sometimes more potent and wholesome than any of the quack nostrums flaunted in the daily papers and on the hoardings. Ten years ago the herbalists did a brisk trade in London, especially among lower-class housewives, who, having come up from the country, were glad enough to obtain the old-world decoctions. But nowadays the herbalist's only source of profit seems to be in the sale of skin soaks and worm tablets. Old Morris, with his ugly deformed figure and shining bald head, welcomed me warmly as I entered, and at once invited me into the little shop parlour beyond, a mere dark cupboard which still retained the odour of the midday meal. Irish stew it must have been, and seemed infested with a myriad of flies. Possibly the fragrance of the herbs attracted them, or else they reveled among the succulent tablets exposed in the open boxes upon the narrow counter. These lozenges, together with his various bottled brews, tinctures of this and of that, the old man manufactured in a kind of dilapidated shed at the rear, which, be it said, often offended the olfactory nerves of the whole neighborhood when certain herbs were in the process of stewing. "'Lily is out,' croaked the weird old fellow in response to my inquiry. "'But I'll, of course, give her the message. She don't get much chance nowadays, poor child. When her mother was alive we used to manage to run down to Margate for a week or fortnight in the hot weather. But now—' and he shrugged his shoulders with quite a foreign air. "'Well, there's only me to look after the shop,' he added, "'and things are not so brisk as they were a few years ago.' He spoke with a slight accent due, Flew had told me, to the fact that his mother was French, and he had lived in France for a number of years. Few people, however, noticed it, for by many he was believed to be a Jew. I nodded. I could see that the trade done there was infinitesimal and quite insufficient to pay the rent. Besides, was not the fact that Lily had been compelled to go out and earn her own living proof in itself that the strange-looking old fellow was the reverse of prosperous? The herbal trade in London is nearly as dead as the manufacture of that once popular metal, known as German silver. "'Lily has gone to see an aunt of hers over at Battersea,' the old man explained. "'But she'll be home at five. She's got her holidays now, and, poor girl, she's been sadly disappointed.' She expected to go down to her married sister at Huntington, but couldn't go because her sister's laid up with rheumatic fever. So she has to stay at home this year, and this place isn't much of a change for her. I glanced around at the dark, close little den, and at the strong-smelling shop beyond, and was fain to admit that he spoke the truth. "'I suppose your friend Mr. Clue is busy as usual with his murders and his horrors,' he remarked, smiling. "'He's a wonderful, acute fellow.' I always read the paper every day, and am generally interested in the results of the inquiries by the Comet Man. Half London reads his interviews and latest details. Yes, I answered, he's kept hard at work always. There seems to be a never-ceasing string of sensations nowadays. As soon as one mystery is elucidated, another springs up somewhere else. Ah, he answered, his dark eyes gazing at me through his heavy-rimmed glasses. It was always so. Never a day goes past without a mystery of some sort or another. I suppose, I said, if the truth were told, 
more people are poisoned in London than ever the police or the public imagine. I knew that all herbalists were versed in toxicology, more or less, and had a vague idea that I might learn something from him. Of course, he answered, there are several poisons, the results of which bear such strong resemblance to symptoms of disease, that doctors are very frequently misled, and the verdict is death from natural causes. In dozens of cases every year the post-mortem proves disease, and thus the poisoner escapes. "'What causes you to think this?' I inquired eagerly, recollections of the tragedy in Kensington vividly in my mind. "'Well,' he said, "'I can only make that allegation because every herbalist in London sells poisons in smaller or greater quantity. If he's an unwise man, he asks no questions. If he's wise, he makes the usual inquiry. And then?' Well, the old man croaked with the small eyes twinkling in the semi-darkness. The customer generally pays pretty dearly for the article. Which means that an entry is made in the poison register which is not altogether the truth, eh? He smiled and nodded. When poisons are sold at a high price, the old herbalist answered, the vendor has no desire to know for what purpose the drug is to be used. It is generally supposed that it is to kill vermin. You understand? and human beings are more often the victims i hazarded he raised his grey shaggy brows with an expression of affected ignorance answering who can tell the herbs or drugs are sold unlabeled and wrapped in blank paper as far as the herbalist is concerned his liability is at an end just as a cutler sells razors or a gunmaker revolvers and do you really believe that there is much secret poisoning in london at this moment i inquired greatly interested believe it he echoed why there's no doubt of it why do people buy certain herbs which could be used for no other purpose than the destruction of human life do they actually buy poisons openly i exclaimed in surprise well no not exactly openly he responded they are most of them very wary how they approach the subject and all are prepared to pay heavily i looked at the odd ugly figure before me for the first time i had learned the secret of this trade Perhaps even he retailed poisons to those who wanted such undesirable commodities, charging exorbitant prices for them, and entering fictitious sales in the poison book which, by law, he was compelled to keep. "'Have you ever actually had dealings with any poisoners?' I inquired. "'Remember,' I added, laughing, "'that I'm not interviewing you, that we are friends, and that I don't intend to publish this conversation in the newspapers.' that's rather a difficult question he responded with a look of mystery upon his face perhaps i'd best reply that i've before now sold poisons to people who could want them for no other purpose than the removal of superfluous friends but do they actually ask openly for this herb or that certainly with excuses for its use of course and he went on to remark how lucidly the science of poisoning was explained in a certain book which might be purchased anywhere for seven and sixpence a work which had undoubtedly cost thousands of human lives. Then instantly I recollected. It was a copy of the same book that Dick had noticed in the morning room at Riverdean. In this very room, the old fellow went on, I've had some queer inquiries made by all sorts and conditions of people. Only the other day a young girl called to consult me, having heard, she said, that I sold for a consideration a certain deadly herb. By her voice she was evidently a lady. His final observation increased my interest in this remarkable conversation. What was she like? I inquired with eagerness, for since the affair at Phillimore Place 
I took the keenest interest in anything appertaining to poisons. She was rather tall and slim, dressed in black. But my eyes are not so good as they used to be, and in the dark here I couldn't see much of her face through her veil. She was pretty, I think. And did you actually sell her what she wanted? He hesitated a moment. Certainly, and at my own price, he answered at last in his thin, rasping voice. The stuff, one of the most dangerous and little-known compounds, not obtainable through any ordinary channel, is most difficult to handle. But I saw that it was not for the first time she'd had azotics in her possession, and he smiled grimly, rendering his face the more hideous. From her attitude and conversation I should imagine her to be a very ingenious but not altogether desirable acquaintance, he added. And didn't you note anything by which you might recognize her again, I inquired. Surely young girls are not in the habit of buying poison in that manner. Well, croaked the distorted old fellow with a grin, I did notice one thing certainly. She wore a brooch of rather uncommon pattern. It was a plain card in golden enamel, a tiny five of diamonds. A five of diamonds? I gasped. At that instant the truth became plain, although I hesitated to believe it. The brooch was Ava Glasslings, one that she had worn only three days before when I was last down at Riverdene, and while on the river with her I had remarked its quaintness. Could it be possible that she had actually purchased a deadly drug of this hideous old man? Or were there other brooches of similar pattern and design? Thus were increased the shadows which seemed to envelop her. My soul seemed killed within me. End of chapter twelve. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's audiobooks dot com.